Good morning. I'm going to be honest. It's been quite a morning. And my heart is a little unsettled. And I thought it would be good for us to pray. So I'm going to open us with prayer. Father, we come to you pleading on behalf of the blood of your son that you would care for Emily, that you would give the physicians great skill, that you would give the treatment great effect. Father, we ask uh, that you would help us, that you would work in our hearts, that our care for Emily would propel us to you, not to doubt not to unbelief, not to doubt your goodness or your sovereign care for her. Father, we indeed can remark on the goodness that you have shown this morning, the fact that we have trained medical professionals here among us that could immediately care for her, that the fact that you have paramedics not far from our building, the fact that she had her episode and the one time throughout her week where there would instantly be hundreds of people praying for her. That wouldn't have happened any other time. That's your goodness shown to her. Father, please calm our hearts. Help us to, to hear from your word that which you have planned for us to hear this morning. In your good providence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for something completely different. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a joy for me to fill in for Sean this morning, or at least that's the words I wrote down. It's a little bit different right now, but it is a joy to be here. And I hope that this morning's events would remind us of the brevity of life and the importance of hanging upon God's word, every bit of it. Sean is, of course, in Ecuador on the mission trip, and I hope that you'll be in prayer for him for the teaching time specifically that he and Pastor Jim will be giving for the Ecuadorian pastors and their wives while they're down there. On Sunday nights, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We are almost a year into our study of 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in chapter 6. Beginning chapter 6, this is a letter written to a young church in the Greek city called Corinth, a young church with all sorts of problems. And Paul has been laboring to show them in this letter how a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves in light of the gospel will help us with the big problems in life. He's addressed their arrogance related to inflated views of their own wisdom, which we'll see again in our text today. He's addressed their pride in their spiritual leaders, pride in their preachers. And last week we saw him addressing their deficient view of the holiness of God's church. Specifically, he calls out a man in open sexual sin. And in today, he tackles a problem head-on of Christians suing one another, robbing one another, because of their unchristian spirit of demanding their own rights to the harm of another. Unresolved conflict had led some in the church to take their brother to court to get the world to resolve their own conflict. 
And as we'll see from Paul, such sinful recourse is ruled out when we really understand who we are in the gospel and what we've been given in the promises of the gospel. So let's look at our text, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of our Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers... But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us. Today we will examine our text looking at two main points. Specifically noting two things that the Corinthian church had forgotten. First, they had forgotten who they were in Christ. And secondly, they had forgotten their calling in Christ. They had forgotten who they were and their calling in Christ. So let's look at the first one. How they had forgotten who they were in Christ. As I prayed through this text in preparation for this week, I initially struggled to see how what Paul was saying in chapter 5 has to do with what he's saying here in chapter 6. It seems to be kind of a rabbit trail or a diversion from what he had been saying. But as I reflected further, I began to see that a main connection point is a failure on behalf of the church to understand who they were as a holy people in Christ. They were new creations in Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and thus they ought to have been distinct from the world in terms of how they relate to one another and how they relate to the world. And that was, again, the issue here in chapter 6. In order to highlight how worldliness had infiltrated the church, it would be helpful for us to notice a little bit about Corinth, about the city, the context in which they were living. The Greek society was one in which uh, was highly litigious, meaning they, they had lawsuits and lawyers everywhere. In fact, someone even remarked at the time that in Greek society, every man is a lawyer. Every man was a lawyer, and that's because the whole society was filled with legal proceedings in which men would take part at one point or another in their life. Lawsuits and legal proceedings and mediations were almost like a national pastime. They were a form of entertainment. Greek citizens would be drafted to be jurors, similar to our system of jury duty, and they were drafted sometimes in comically large numbers. The standard litig litigation civil trials, civil litigation trials, composed juries of 40 men. And we have historical record of some juries being as large as 1,000 people up to 6,000 people. Could you imagine being on a jury with 6,000 of your peers? And the court proceedings were regular fare. It was almost like the reality TV of the day. This is the context in which the majority Greek believers of this church were saved out of. This was their culture. And it was into this cultural practice that Paul is speaking. 
It was this worldly frame of mind that the Corinthian believers were dragging into church. And now, to look at our text, we see Paul use some really strong language. There are at least eight rhetorical questions by my count, depending upon how you translate the Greek. And he uses these in order to move the Corinthians to see the truth of God and the foolishness of their actions. And his basic principle is clear. Christians don't sue one another. Christians don't sue one another. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's saying if you have a conflict between a brother or sister in Christ, why do you go to those outside of Christ in order to handle the conflict? I know in our minds each of us is probably trying to think of exceptions right now. What about this? What about that? This text is not eliminating the possibility of using the legal system at all. And it's certainly not teaching that a righteous legal system is not a good thing. Paul himself appealed to the law. Acts 28. He affirmed the goodness of lawful civil authority in Romans 13. But we never read of Paul appealing to a legal system in matters between brothers. Now Christians may have to use the legal system in proper ways. For example, in a divorce proceeding, which involves the dissolution of a civil union of marriage, you have to go through courts in our society. Or maybe a matter of public safety, you have to go to the law in order to get a restraining order to get the police to protect you. But these kinds of exceptions do not negate the overriding principle that Paul is teaching here. Christians ought not sue one another. And why is that, Paul? He says because they've forgotten who they were. Specifically, he's forgotten what their destiny will be as those saved in Christ. Look again at the text. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Their destiny that they had forgotten was that they will judge the world. The saints, meaning anyone united to Christ by faith, literally the holy ones, These saints will one day judge the the world. We might even translate it rule. The Bible teaches that believers will be united to Christ and will join him in his rule and judgment over the cosmos on the last day. The Bible teaches this in several places. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones. Judging, ruling. Jude 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with his ten thousands of holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of, of their deeds of ungodliness that they committed and all the harsh things that the sinners have done. Revelation 3.21. Christ says to the church at Laodicea, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his. You can read of similar things in Daniel chapter 7. The point that Paul makes is this. Because of who you have been made in Christ. And by virtue of being united to him by faith. You will stand in judgment on the last day. And if this is the case. Why can't you handle trivial matters now? If the world is to be judged by you, Paul says, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
And he presses it even further in the next verse. And he says a very interesting statement. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Presumably, here he means that in the life to come we will stand with Christ, perhaps as jurors or fellow rulers, affirming the righteous judgment of Christ over the fallen angels. I'm not sure why we would need to judge holy angels. I assume he's referring to the fallen angels. I don't know all the implications of this judgment theologically, but the point that Paul is making here is that if we have the destiny of one day ruling over creation, indeed judging over such significant matters as the angels, can we not also judge the trivial matters now? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? So then Paul says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? If you have been saved by Christ, if you've been granted his Holy Spirit of discernment and of peace, then how could you not resolve matters among the body? Why would you take these conflicts in front of people who lack the spirit, who lack biblical discernment, who lack the principles of truth outlined in God's word? It doesn't make sense, and it brings shame to God's people. That's what he says next, verse 5. I say this to your shame. They had forgotten who they were, and they had adopted the pagan mentality of the world, where they went before pagan rulers in order to demand their rights, even to the point of defrauding one another, Paul says. This may seem like something that might not be an issue for you. We don't often, thankfully, have to go sue one another. But in the past month, you can read of a well-known Baptist church in Washington, D.C. that's getting drugged into court over issues of who their leadership is and a vote that they had for elders. They're going to court. It's a church full of thousands of people proclaiming the name of Christ. This is a real temptation. People get so worked up over conflict, they get so enraged and frustrated by their grievance, and they don't get what they want right now, and so they run to the world to try and get what they can get. That's what happened in Corinth, and Paul presses them, and he uses some of the sharpest sarcasm in the entire letter. Look at verse 6. He says, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle this dispute? None of you are wise enough to handle this on your own. You've got to go to a pagan who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Sharp words. Is it possible for a church that was so proud, remember chapter 1, chapter 2, so proud of how wise and discerning they were in the Spirit, proud of its doctrinal knowledge, proud of its gifts, is it possible that none of you are wise enough in Corinth? Nobody has the spiritual maturity and wisdom. Paul's taking it to them. That's why Paul says in verse 4, If you have such, take, such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why not instead give it to the simplest, to the person of lowest reputation in the church to handle it? Because the simplest Christian, armed with the truth of God and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, ought to be able to mediate even complex disagreements between brothers and sisters, better than a pagan legal system. And you see the fundamental distinction that Paul highlights here again. The Spirit-empowered believer, even an immature one, 
is an entirely new creation in Christ and thus has a level of discernment that even the wisest pagan may have. Now we don't all have the same level of discernment, but his sarcasm is illustrating that the presence of the Spirit in a person combined with prayerful humility and the Word of God ought to be able to handle their conflicts. And so then, where do we apply this to ourselves? When you're in conflict with someone else in the church, another brother or sister, what is your first impulse? When a brother or sister has a grievance against you, or if you have a grievance against someone else, is your first impulse to demand my rights, to seek immediate justice for them, to seek immediate retribution and vengeance for the wrongs committed against you? Even thinking, what what recourse do I have? What other tools do I have in my tool bag? Lawsuits? I'll do it if I have to. Or are you a person whose first impulse is to be long-suffering towards the offending party? Are you first inclined towards grace and mercy? Or do you demand your rights even to the detriment of a brother and sister? If I'm honest, my first inclination is usually to demand justice for others and mercy for me. Their sins are always worse than my sins. That's my first impulse. I want people to show me grace and mercy whenever I sin, but I want justice for them. Because they've sinned against me. How dare they? That's probably the case that you've felt in your life. We are born inclined towards the worldly pattern of selfishness. A worldly pattern of excusing my own sin and magnifying the sins that have been committed against me. I want wrath for others, but I want my sentence reduced. I want my sentence committed, commuted. But praise be to God that Christ has not acted in this way. Christ did not demand that we receive immediate just punishment for our sins, which would have been fair, but he instead granted us mercy. Christ did not take immediate vengeance against sinners like me and you, but instead took on our liability. He took on our punishment, the punishment that we had earned because of our selfishness. And he died so that we might receive mercy. He went to the cross so that our sentence might be forgiven. And he took on the full weight of divine justice on the cross so that we might be vindicated in the divine court of cosmic justice. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what the Corinthians had forgotten, and that's what we're too quick to forget as well. Believers, when we're quick to demand our rights in a conflict, when we're quick to demand justice for others while reserving mercy for ourselves, remember Jesus. Remember how he was moved, moved by his love to lay down his life for a people and willing to take on immense grief in order that others might be relieved of theirs. Remember, he was nailed to the cross, painfully bleeding from his body, wearing a crown of thorns. And he didn't call down justice. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the radical nature of Christ's work on the cross. And if you look at yourself and you see that you're not a merciful person, that you're quick to demand your rights while not thinking of the good of another, 
then know that you too can be forgiven of your sinfulness. Come to faith. Come to faith in Jesus. Come and trust and believe in him. Believe in the Christ presented in scripture. The Jesus that's presented by Paul and the other apostles. See the love of Christ poured out on the cross at Calvary. And trust in him and you too can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can be forgiven of your sins and made a new creation in Christ. And made an increasingly merciful person by the work of the Holy Spirit within you. A person like Jesus. That was our first point, that the Corinthians had forgotten who they were in Christ. Now let's look at the second point and see that the Corinthians had forgotten their calling. They had forgotten their calling to which they had been called when they became followers of this Jesus Christ. And their calling is this, self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love. Look again at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all, with one another is already a defeat for you. They had already been defeated. The presence of lawsuits among believers is already the presence of defeat. They had given over to sinful litigation. And it demonstrated that they had forgotten their high calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Christ says that we should be known by our love for one another. 1 John makes clear in multiple places that our love for one another ought to confirm our assurance that we are indeed saved or the absence of love for one another might demonstrate that we're not saved at all. Listen to some of the words from 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Or here's another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Those are strong words. If we love a brother, we won't take them to court. Instead, we'll be willing to love, even to suffer instead. That's the calling of the Christian life, to suffer for the sake of love. And that's what Paul says next. To have lawsuits with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. One commentator sums it up this way. A Christian should rather put up with a little injury than to appease himself and to provoke others by a lawsuit. The peace of his mind and the calm of the Christian community are worth more than victory in such a legal contest and reclaiming one's own rights, especially when the quarrel must be decided by those who are enemies to true religion. It is utterly a sin to wrong and defraud anyone, but it is an aggravation of this particular sin to defraud even a Christian brother. The ties of mutual love ought to be stronger between brothers than between all others. We're called to love, especially loving brothers and sisters for whom Christ himself has died. And where is Paul getting this understanding? Where is Paul getting this idea that we should be willing to suffer even for those who have wronged us? Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus himself. Listen to some of the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You've heard it said... 
an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How about the words from Luke 17? Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's a radical calling to which we've been called as believers. Not to be one who retaliates. Not to harbor a list of wrongs and grievances committed against us. Not to be those that demand our rights and demand immediate justice against those who have grieved us. But to forgive. But to cover in love. To give up our tunics. To give up our stuff. And rather be robbed for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. That's a high calling. That's the radical nature of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I admit, that's a high bar. That's a tough calling. But for those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, who have tasted true forgiveness in themselves, true forgiveness of sins, and true forgiveness for having desires of vengeance and retaliation, they've instead been given the spirit of love, which is our, our high calling. Press into that. And pray to God that he would help you be a merciful and forgiving person. For there are few virtues in this world that so clearly highlight to the pagan world the unmistakable difference that the gospel makes than genuine self-sacrificial love and forgiveness. Few things demonstrate to the world that the gospel is true, that Jesus really is the Christ, like real, costly, loving forgiveness. And if that picture of forgiveness is compelling to you. If you want to become a person of mercy like Jesus was, then think again of the glorious picture of forgiveness found at the cross. The God of all creation gave up his own son, put him to death in order to love a people who were not forgiving. To make them into new creations, to make them new creatures, creatures who love and forgive one another, not creatures that sue one another. Isn't that a compelling vision for the church? To be a community of people so in love with their Savior that they'd be willing to suffer loss out of love for their brothers and sisters. They would go out of their way to bless others, even others that might have robbed them. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church we're called to be. May God help us to grow into that kind of church. Church that is distanced from the sinful clamoring of rights, of justice, that the world so demands, and thereby bringing glory to Christ, even through our conflicts with one another. Let's pray, and then we'll close with the hymn. Father, we ask that you would make us into this kind of church that loves one another well, that doesn't seek to bite and devour, doesn't seek to rob and defraud, but seeks to model Christ, model self-sacrificial love. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to close this morning by singing, Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My Vision.